Hello, everyone. This is Greg Drevenstead, Editor-in-Chief at Writer Magazine and your host for the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast. Our guest today is Melissa Holbrook-Pearson. Melissa is the author of several books, including The Perfect Vehicle, The Man Who Would Stop at Nothing, and most recently, an edited anthology called Motorcycles Are Magic. Melissa, welcome to the show. Hi, Greg. Great to be here. Yeah, it's good that uh, you could dial in. I know we're on opposite sides of the country, but uh, that's the uh, magic of Zoom these days. We've all been on it. Yep, many, many times. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, you've written two of my favorite books about motorcycles, and you've edited a new anthology called Motorcycles Are Magic. Um, I'd like to start talking about your first book, uh, The Perfect Vehicle, What It Is About Motorcycles, which was published in 1997. Uh, is widely considered one of the best books ever written about motorcycles, which I would fully agree. Um, I just want to start like kind of on a personal level. That book, um, it was one of the first motorcycle books I read. I started riding and got my first motorcycle in 1998. I was in my mid-20s. I was in graduate school. And your book was published a year before I started riding. And I don't know how I found out about your book. It was maybe the Aerostitch catalog or something like that, because Andy Goldfine always curates cool motorcycle books. But um, um, the, the reason that book resonated with me a lot is that uh, I was living in Philadelphia at the time. And I know in your book, you refer to a, a small independent shop in Philadelphia. It's there in Old City near the Ben Franklin Bridge. I had actually been there. But also you kind of go into the, you know, the personal side of learning to ride and what that means and sort of what that sort of transformation is. And I was going through it as, as well. So I was learning to ride myself as well as learning to ride and what motorcycles meant through your book. And so it meant a lot to me. So mm -hmm. can you? Yeah, I think, I think that's um, been the experience with a lot of readers. And it's funny because that book is, you know, published in the prior century, and um, it's still hitting a nerve with people. I guess because I intended, um, probably semi-consciously intended, to just write about the things that were truly elemental and not time-bound um, about riding. So as long as there are motorcycles and combustion engines. I think maybe it will speak to, you know, some aspects of this common experience. Sure. I mean, you, part of the book, you know, you go into some of the histories of motorcycles, some, you know, um, important people and so forth. And what's interesting is that when I read the book, uh, one of the few magazines that you refer to in the book is Writer Magazine. I know you published an article in 1992 called Alone, more of an essay, actually. And then... Um, Clement Salvadori gets a mention in that book. And at the time I didn't read, I didn't read Rider Magazine. So when I reread The Perfect Vehicle recently, I actually went through and read that. And then I read The Man Who Would Stop at Nothing. And then uh, I just read The Motorcycles or Mags. It is when I read it the first time, I didn't know anything about Rider Magazine. And then to read it years later after I had worked at the magazine for a number of years and now I'm editor in chief, it was just kind of a bizarre thing to sort of like, you know, get reoriented. And like I said, in terms of time, but with that book, like you said, it doesn't, it isn't time bound. I mean, that was the, that was before the internet was very pervasive before social media was pervasive and we were sharing so many aspects of people's lives. So how you learned about motorcycles was through books and magazines and through um, clubs and rallies and newsletters. And 
it was a different way and you really had to do a little bit of extra work to find out what you wanted to know. Yeah, I, I, I often think back to that time and I think, wait a minute, how did we meet up with people like on the road or all, all these things like, where are you? Um, I'm around the next bend, we can call. And, but you know what? I never ended up, or if I did end up separated from, from other riders, it was not, it was not a tragedy. It wasn't a terrible thing. It ended up being, you know, an adventure and connecting with people through the medium of, you know, the, the monthly newsletter that would actually appear in the real mailbox. You know, it's, it's such a funny thing. We ma we managed to connect. It's just now things happen at a speed and a breadth that, you know, I'm connected with, with a sort of, international brotherhood of, of motorcyclists now because of because of those books. I have friends sort of all over the world, which is a phenomenal thing. It's great. Well, you were you were a writer before you started riding motorcycles. Is that you had a book did you publish a book before the perfect vehicle? No, or? it was my it was my first book. So first in book. a way I can credit motorcycles themselves with giving me a career as well as you know, all of the most meaningful relationships in my life and on and on and on. And I know that that's a, that's a really common experience that we all have that, sure. that, that motorcycles are literally the, the beating heart of, of our lives, of our, of our psychic and spiritual and physical and, you know, relational lives. It's an that's, that's why I, that's why I titled that anthology motorcycles are magic because yes. they are. Yes, yes. Well, you know, I mentioned the article that you wrote. It was about five years prior to the perfect vehicle. It's called Alone. And it's a very personal essay. I mean, it's a long form essay that, that is actually not that common in motorcycle magazines anymore. And I was like, ah, oh, we need to publish more things like this. And in the beginning of that essay, what really actually resonated with me is you talk about when you go out motorcycle traveling, when you're doing a solo motorcycle journey, you say that, you know, it doesn't make you all of a sudden a loquacious person. You don't become a different person on the motorcycle and that you tend to, you know, you don't necessarily make new friends out on the road that you kind of, your interactions are more transactional. And I really am the same way. I'm, I'm a little bit on the shy side, a little bit introverted. And so when I go out riding on a motorcycle, I feel like I've got my own little space. And so, yes, I may need to buy some gas or I need to buy a meal somewhere, but I tend to keep to myself and... I feel like I've got permission to do so. And I actually really enjoy that aspect of riding where I'm like, okay, I don't have to interact right now. And I can kind of pull inward and enjoy the solitude. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. I, I feel as though um, it really emphasizes the aspect of just passing through. That's what you wanna do. You're moving through this world. It's not that the world isn't touching you or that you can't touch it, but it's really all about keeping going, you know, in a, in a very uh, primordial sense. Sure, sure. Well, I, you know, it sounds like both of us came to motorcycling a little bit later in life. I know people that started riding as kids, they learned it from their parents and so forth. And my father had a motorcycle when I was young and I would ride on it with him, but I didn't learn to actually ride my own motorcycle until, like I said, I was in my mid twenties. And it also has, you know, transformed my life. I was a number cruncher for many years and motorcycles were kind of my escape from that. That's how I learned to ride. And then, you know, I did have the good fortune of 
going to work for a motorcycle magazine, which I understand is a pretty rare opportunity. But that also opened me up to a whole new world of different styles of motorcycles and types of riding and and things like that. And um, and you know, meeting people like you and other authors, Peter Jones, uh, other journalists that uh, Clement Salvadori, these people that have written things that touch a lot of people deeply, and it's been great. Yeah, yeah. it is. That's that's a nice bonus. Yeah. So. Um, like you said, The Perfect Vehicle, that was a, a book that uh, resonated with a lot of people, uh, particularly I know with the Moto Guzzi community, that is a, a brand of motorcycle that you mentioned uh, very affectionately in that book. Um, what is it about the Moto Guzzi brand? I know they just earlier this week celebrated their 100th anniversary of continuous operation. How did you get connected with that particular brand of motorcycle? It was just chance. Isn't it funny how often we just stumble into something that later seems as though it couldn't have been more perfect? I think we choose the bikes we, we ride um, for a number of different um, reasons that we can't necessarily articulate. And it was, it's really, it's the people who ride these particular bikes. They happen to be fiercely independent um, and probably because they need to be because, um, you know, let's say that the support network isn't what, what it could be, but that's, you know, that doesn't matter. It brings us closer together because we need each other. And, um, you know, I just found such generosity of, of intellect and spirit among people who ride Gootsies. It's just, I, I don't know that I was like, wow, I just happened on the bike that was literally perfect for me. You know, that's interesting because, you know, motorcycling is this am amalgamation of many different sort of subcultures and groups. I mean, there's the, there's the Harley crowd or the Indian crowd, you know, the V-twin crowd in general. There are people that are into racing. There are people that in, are into Ducatis or Hondas and people that go to rallies, uh, people that avoid rallies. I mean, it's just sort of like, the, it, it, it's a, at a lot of different times. So the way that Moto Guzzi is described in The Perfect Vehicle is it's almost like, it's almost like kind of that obscure cool band that just a smaller group of people know about. And so it's your shared love of this, this, you know, again, a brand with a lot of history. It's got racing history and technology history and so forth, but it's still, it's not a huge brand in terms of its market share or the number of people that own them. So it's like, you, you love it almost because of that in some ways. Yeah, it's it's a little like, you know, finding out about that little restaurant that is just astonishing, but not too many people know about it because it might be sort of in a little bit of a dank neighborhood, <laughs> um, you know, and it becomes it becomes part of of you and your identity. I think that we use motorcycles as, as a subtle co code to tell the world who we are, who we think we are, um, who we want to be. So yeah, I think, yes, it is a little, little insider club, but I, you know, I think about motorcycling in general as, as like the United States. It is united. There's a lot of commonality. Uh, we're under the same flag, yet there are 50 different states and they also have their um, specific history and um, patois and, you know, all, all sorts of different things, cuisines and, you know, slang and whatnot. We like to, we like to be separate 
we need to differentiate ourselves because I think it's a little frightening to imagine that we're just uh, each of us a single molecule in this you know huge ocean of humanity. Well, and that's a interesting thing is um, you know when I was getting into motorcycling, it was it is not just this. Well, it's a complicated skill. You have to use your your hands and feet and eyes all in coordination, uh, especially if you've never, I used to drive a stick shift car, but if you've never had to operate a clutch, that's a whole other uh, you know level of, of learning. But then there's also like, well, what does it mean to be a motorcyclist? There's all of these sort of like informal or unspoken rules or things that you think are the rules and you don't wanna do it wrong. And so it's it always helps if you've got uh, a friend who takes you in under their wing or a group of friends that they introduce you to. And I think that's part of why some people really like the social aspect of motorcycling. It's like, ooh, okay, we can speak the same language because sometimes if you're filling up uh, a motorcycle with gas and somebody's like, what kind of Harley is that? And it's clearly not a Harley or something. I mean, there's some people it's like, they don't even, you don't even know where to sort of like, at what level should I begin this sort of interaction? Whereas if you've got um, members of the motorcycling tribe, you speak a very common language and it can be like this insider baseball thing. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's really quite relieving to not have to explain yourself from the ground up all the time, you know, as if you were, you know, perennially trapped in a cocktail party where you didn't know anybody and you can only make small talk. It's really relieving to know that people understand what it is that you're doing and why. And they're also not likely to pull out the, but motorcycling is so dangerous, isn't it? And you know, ugh. Everybody's got the story about somebody that got killed in a motorcycle or something like that. I'm like, well, you know, yes, there's, we're all gonna die somehow. It's like, but that's, that always seems to be the thing that most non-motorcyclists think about motorcycles. Like you must be crazy that, you know, and so I agree with you, those are, those are, somewhat tiresome conversations to have because it's like, well, it's almost like that old saying, it's like, well, if you have to ask the question, then you, you're not going to understand. Like, you know, you, you just don't, you know, get it. But um, so it's interesting to talk about sort of groups and um, uh, the common language within motorcycles. So your second book uh, published in 2011, um, The Man Who Would Stop at Nothing, Long Distance Motorcycling's Endless Road. Uh, you talk a lot about the uh, Iron Butt Association and many of the people that either led that organization, um, you know, Michael Kneebone and so forth, as well as some of the, the riders who had gone many, you know, they had won Iron Butt rallies. Of course, John Ryan uh, features very prominently in that book. Uh, sadly, John passed away a couple of years after your book was published. I know I went to the signing, you did a book signing in Southern California. I got to meet you for the first time, got to meet John. Um, but the long distance riding community is one that is, again, most motorcyclists think they're the crazy ones. Like, why would you want to just ride 24 hours or ride a thousand miles in 24 hours or do that multiple days in a row? Some people want to stop and smell the roses or, you know, look at the historical sign. But the long distance riding, I know you did a, a Saddle Sore 1000 as part of that book. Um, it's a whole other type of riding. And so, yeah, complete subculture that really I hadn't known existed. Or I, I think in the perfect vehicle, I think I devote maybe one or two sentences to it because it seemed like, oh, this is just another one of these, you know, utterly fringe activities. And there's a lot of them in motorcycling. Um, but it didn't seem to me 
to be, you know, central to my exploration. And so I thought that I really said everything that I wanted to say in The Perfect Vehicle about motorcycles. But then when I met John Ryan and really started thinking about what the heck he was doing, it stunned me anew. And I thought, there's much more here to say because it seems like it's a, an absolute distillation of the function of riding. In other words, now you've stripped away everything else about riding, the stopping, the going to places, the, you know, the sitting by the side of the road and enjoying the sunset kind of thing. No, long distance, extreme long distance riding is only about riding you know if they can find a way to never get off the bike they would do it <laughs> well i you know i so i did i've done one saddle sore 1000 that has been documented i got my certificate i guess i'm a member of the the club um i had ridden the oregon backcountry discovery route with a few friends and so that started in northeastern california and took uh off-road route to um from the California border to the Washington border. So we were in Walla Walla, Washington, and I needed to get home to Ventura, California. And there's no shortcut. It's a pretty much a straight shot, a thousand, over a thousand miles, no matter how you do it. And so I kind of knew I was going to be coming home this, you know, this long distance. And so I had done, I'd got my forms and got everything signed and then got up super early and rode, um, I don't know, 1100 miles home in one day. And I've, come close to doing it again, but it's, uh, it was a, it was a challenging experience. So people that ride in the iron butt rally do that for 11 days in a row. Some people do, you know, up to 1500 miles in a 24 hour period. There's all these different, um, certified rides you can do. And, uh, for some people it's, it's masochism. It's like, why would you torture yourself that way? But as you said, the, the purity side of it, I can understand. I, I can get that. Yeah. Now, now that I've done it, I'm like, well, I don't, I don't need to do that again. Yay. Um, it, it's, it's just something that calls to some people and not to others. It's like, you know, different flavors. Some people just don't like cilantro. I don't know, you know, <laughs> um, but I, 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 I admire it from afar. I'm actually gobsmacked. Uh, by what some people are doing, it's getting more and more and more extreme because I think as, as humans, it's in our nature to, to keep exceeding what has been done. But I wonder where is the physical and mechanical limit to riding extreme distances in short spans of time? That's, that's an unanswered question right now. Well, what's interesting is in the last, uh, you know, 10 years or so, ultra marathons have become much more pervasive than they had ever been before, where people are running extreme distance, hundreds of miles at a time, you know, it, maybe it's 50 miles, maybe it's 100 miles, whatever it is, they're doing it in Death Valley, they're doing it across the Sahara Desert, it's, they're really pushing the limits of human endurance and, um, and just the physical limits. I mean, it, but most of it is psychological. And I would imagine for, uh, for long distance motorcycle riding, I know it's, it's not the physical challenge as much as yes, you need to stay awake, but it's, it's the, it's the mental preparation you need to be to stay focused and to basically push through, um, and push everything else out. I mean, maybe it's because you're pushing away all those distractions that it is its own sort of, um, meditative process or something. 
Yeah, but I, 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 I haven't checked this out, but I really wonder if there isn't some point during any ride where, you know, the rider says, gee, I think I'd like this to stop. Sure. So it's pushing through that, that right. point because you have something you want to achieve. Right. You know, we set ourselves goals. I think that's how we sort of have to live. Well, you know, I know, and whether it's in your essay alone in the perfect vehicle, other things that you've written, um, you know, you've ridden in rain all day before I've, you know, we've ridden when we're cold, when our hands are numb and it's like, those are, it's usually not a very pleasant experience. I've done it countless times in different places. It's not pleasant in the moment, but after you get through it, there's, there's something about the reward of either the hot shower at the end of that ride, the cold beer, the glass of whiskey, the whatever it may be, it's like, it's just the, the, the comforts of home or the comforts of your destination are that much richer because of what you endured to get there. Yeah, we sort of make a story out of it or it becomes the joke later while you're doing it, as you point out, it's no joke. You're like, please, please, I can't take anymore. But um, then afterwards, it becomes something, you know, we can share and that we also know about ourselves. You know, it, it gives us something, um, you know, we've done something, we've done something that we didn't think we could do. And that is, um, you know, it's a confidence builder. It makes you appreciate your physical self and your abilities and persistence. I would 100% agree. It's interesting, uh, you know, we're here, it's, we've just gone past the one year anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, it seems like light at the end of the tunnel, but this has been a strange year for a lot of us is where a lot of people have pulled inward um, we've been, some people have been stuck at home. Most of us have is that we've had food delivered to us and products delivered to us from Amazon or wherever. And, um, but our society in general has really been geared towards providing as much convenience as co and comfort as possible. And then talking about social media and how easy it is to communicate. So with motorcycling, the idea that you can do an activity that has some built-in discomfort, it's not like I intentionally ride an uncomfortable motorcycle or intentionally ride when it's cold, but sometimes that is part of the experience. Like you've got to have some grit to be a motorcyclist and especially to ride on a regular basis. And to me, I think that's good for the human spirit. Absolutely. I mean, we were, we were built, we evolved to meet challenges. And when you remove all challenge from life, I think suddenly it just feels pointless you know, it's sort of, there's no motivation to really get up. It's, you know, why bother? And so to be able to ride during a period like this reinserts something really necessary and essential about, about human being. And hey, it's socially distanced by its nature. Isn't Absol that great? Absolutely. Absolutely. So you have uh, edited and you have a, a, um, a piece in this new volume called Motorcycles or Magic, this anthology. Tell us about it. I've read it. It's got a variety of voices, a uh, variety. It's got a poem. It's got some history. It's got some artwork. I mean, how did you, what was your motivation? How did you pull this together? I, you know, the thing is, is as you pointed out about um, this sort of scarcity of the essay voice in, in motorcycle literature, 
where it's it's oriented toward you know technical and reviews and um, ride reports and things like that, which is all great, all information that we need. But I felt as though there was a little bit of a hole where the um, more introspective or exploratory um, impulse could be put. So I, for a long time, I, I wanted to, I thought I was gonna do this through conventional publishing, but golly, you just cannot get non-motorcyclists to understand that there are valid things to say about motorcycling in just the same way that books are published for a general audience on, uh, you know, all sorts of extreme things, you know, whether surfing or um, mountain climbing or running, but they don't get motorcycling in that same vein. And finally, I thought to myself, you know what? I don't need to convince anybody else um, that I need to put out a book like this. I can do it myself. Gosh, that was you know quite the revelation. And um, I used some of the money that um, my mother had left me when she died a couple of years ago. And I thought, you know, I think mom would approve of this and whether or not she did didn't matter. Um, and I also wanted to make a sort of a, a beautiful object because I like the, um, I just like the bookness of a book. Um, and so I decided to do a limited edition letterpress cover and I got to put in anything that I wanted. So we've got an international representation of points of view um, and, I, and I wanted that too. Well, like I said, I've read the, the book. I am familiar with a, a couple of the authors that I've met personally. I mean, Peter Jones has started writing a column for, for Writer Magazine. Uh, met him many times on press launches. Gabe Etzhoken, I know from also his uh, writing for publications, Jack Lewis. But I was also introduced to some new authors, some new perspectives that I found it was enjoyable. Like I said, it was a, it was a wide variety and some of them resonated with me more than others, but that's what I, it was like, it was nice that it wasn't the same consistent type of, of piece or chapter in, in the anthology. It wasn't like, okay, we're all gonna talk about this. It was, uh, I didn't kind of know what to expect with the next chapter I would turn to. Yeah, it was sort of all over the place. I mean, I, I learned of um, Kartik Ver, who uh, wrote a nice piece for this book. He's the editor of India's largest car and motorcycle magazine. And um, I got to go to Italy, I mean, to India, sorry, I've been to Italy too, um, to India a couple of years ago when he asked me to um, go to their version of, of Bike Week, a big massive celebration in Goa. And I found, oh my gosh, Indians are just as into bikes, maybe more because certainly it is, I believe it, it's the world's largest um, motorcycle market. Um, everybody's riding, but they have the same passion for leisure time riding, let's, let's call it, that, that we do. Um, and it was both, it was beautiful to see how they there um, are both like us, but also have their own imprint um, on the experience. So, um, you know, that was, that was a really, that was a cool experience that was open to me 
again, only by because I wrote about motorcycles. Well, like I said, because of the books that you've written uh, resonated with uh, very much an international audience, it's kind of opened uh, the doors or, you know, your, your uh, brotherhood of, you know, fellow motorcyclists has, has gone, gone global, your network of people. And that's great because, like I said, there are authors that are in that uh, anthology that names I'd never heard of. And so I was introduced to them and their points of view in a way that was refreshing. Like I said, if I knew everybody who wrote the book or if it was just your book, like it would have been like, okay, I, I've read a couple of Melissa's books and I, I did read your, your chapter in there, but I also got to introduce, you introduced us to new people, you know, and new authors and new voices. And um, I have an appreciation for that. I love it. And what's also interesting is um, because of when this book is being published, it's just been published recently, right? Within the last few weeks? Yes. Mm -hmm. Is uh, So Gabe Etzhoken writes a story that's got a little bit of a COVID pandemic vibe. He's talked about, you know, looking for old motorcycles that he used to own. Can he find new ones on Craigslist or, or you know, buy, you know, explore, do a little bit of internet research because he had time on his hand. Peter Jones has a very personal account of, of some caregiving that he went through during the COVID-19 pandemic and how the motorcycle is more around the periphery of that story. But it's a it's a very intimate account that I, you know, I, I loved it because I've met him but didn't know what he had gone through. But he's also talking about, well, there's this motorcycle I bought and I'm trying to get it from the West Coast to the East Coast. And but I've got all these things going on in my life. And it's like it's just a very human portrait of, of experience during a time where we're all going to look back on and remember like, OK, I remember when it's when the pandemic started, what I was dealing with during that time. And I appreciated that. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's really important to listen to how um, motorcycles intersect with the rest of our lives because we're not just unidimensional. And I think reading the traditional uh, motorcycle press, you'd think that this is all that goes on in people's lives. I, it's not to say it's a bad thing. I'm, I'm happy to center motorcycles, but they're really, they're an enriching part of a bigger picture um, for, for all of us. We all have other things going on in our lives and inside our heads and hearts. Well, another chapter, I'm gonna, I know I'm not gonna get his last name right, George Serenikalau. Yes. I don't know if, close Good. enough, I hope. <laughs> well, but his, his, he's, he's, I see, he's Greek and he talks about sort of what the uh, Greece was going through in terms of its economy and austerity and things I've read about from, you know, in the news in the past, but it was an interestingly personal account. And again, like it, that doesn't, it's like, well, what does that have to do with motorcycles? But it's like, well, a good author can kind of tie multiple things together uh, into, a, a, like I said, it's a well-written story and essay. And that's what, that's really what matters. But it can also, like I said, we're like Walt Whitman says, you know, we're, we're, I have vast, it contained multitudes. We're all complicated people. So <laughs> that's right. And, and motorcycles are, they're both very real and they're symbolic. We, we use them to express um, aspects of ourselves. And I think we view them as such um, in other people's lives. And that's what Marina Cianfaroni's piece about the use of motorcycle as symbol in film 
you know, primarily um, European film where they, they do represent something different than um, commonly in American film. It's interesting because in that chapter, she refers to the motorcyclist as the centaur. And mm -hmm. um, I interviewed uh, Paul Dorleon, who uh, publishes The Vintagent, and he referenced that same term. He said, in Europe, it's like, we don't really use that term in the same way, but in, in Europe is the centaur, the, the, the human on the machine, kind of like the person that's half, half, half human, half horse, is like that is, a, that is a symbol that they use for you know, what a motorcyclist is. And I find that interesting. Yeah, it, it is. There's, it, there, there really are sort of endless uses of, of bikes as symbols, um, you know, as well as the regular ways we use bikes. Well, I have to say it's, it's been a genuine pleasure to speak with you. I, you know, I've enjoyed your books. I just want to personally thank you for writing them. Thank you for and sharing this new book, Motorcycles Are Magic. Now, you, you said that this is a limited production or limited run. So how, if somebody wanted to buy this book, how would they do that? Well, they could sort of enter the lottery. And um, at this point, it's almost that because I've, I'm halfway through the first print run. Not sure if I'm going to go back for another. But people could um, send a query through motorcyclesaremagic.com. Okay. Okay, great. Well, we'll include a link in the show notes. And hopefully those that are interested can get their hands on the book. Is there anything else you would like to share with our audience in terms of, you know, like I said, I know it's the Moto Guzzi 100th anniversary, uh, you know, you, anything else you want to share with us? Just that I'm really, really happy to see um, Rider Magazine um, rejuvenated because as I said in The Perfect Vehicle, there's not a lot that I specifically remember about that book, but um, I do remember saying that Rider was the only motorcycle magazine that I kept a subscription to because the other ones didn't speak to me, but what Rider's mission is, does. And so I'm just, I'm really thrilled to be able to talk to you and, and very happy to see you in the seat. Uh, thank you very much. You know, that's one of the things that when I started working at Rider is that, you know, Mark Tuttle was the editor at the time. He was the editor for 32 years. And what he impressed upon me is that Rider is really about the real world rider. It is, you know, it has a touring focus or that's how it was originally founded. But over the 47 years it's been in print is uh, there have been, we've tested all kinds of motorcycles. We've included lots of different voices, people like you, um, you know, James Peterson, uh, uh, Clement Salvadori, lots of people that have are well-known um, authors in their own right. And for them to share either columns or essays about the motorcycling experience gives riders a, uh, a different perspective other than, like I said, because we still do the road tests, we still do the product reviews, we still do the news items and things like that. Uh, so it, we try to have a well-rounded um, uh, uh, type of a range of content. And uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, so it's, it's an honor to have worked there for uh, since 2008 and to be able to take over as editor. And uh, it's, uh, it's a steep learning curve, I'll, I'll admit that, but it's a, it's a fun challenge. So again, I really appreciate your time. Uh, you've been, like I said, we'll have a, uh, a link to the Motorcycles Are Magic in the show notes, uh, motorcyclesarmagic.com. Um, but again, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Greg. So for the Rider Magazine Insider Podcast, I'm Greg Drevenstead. Thanks for listening and keep the rubber side down.